On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. conversation back up. So here's my third one. And I think this is the the one I'm most excited to talk about it. It's great to be able to win one-on-one battles. Like when, when we're putting together a clip or something that you're going to tweet out, it's always like so satisfying to just see when Nathan McKinnon beats someone one-on-one and it's very easy to identify, but to reach a higher sort of plane offensively in terms of operating at just an entirely different level, I think you almost need to be able to threaten the defense enough to not just beat them one-on-one, but kind of force their hand into sending help to offer up a one-on-two for that star player so that then they can then exploit that and make it easier for their teammates. You know what I mean? In the sense that all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, if Nathan McKinnon is commanding enough attention where the, the lightning are sending two skaters his way, then that in theory means that if he gets the puck away in time, all of a sudden his teammates have a four on three, or if it's down low, maybe they can execute on a three on two. And it makes life so much easier for other players that probably can't necessarily win those battles one-on-one in any given situation. And I think that's such a, uh, it creates such a competitive advantage for teams when they have players that can do so. And for both those teams, like if you start with the lightning, you know, they exploit this idea at both ends of the ice, because in their own zone, they're confident enough in their one-on-one defense where they don't necessarily need to cheat that off. And they're not sending help over generally, especially their defensemen are so dialed in that they can handle their own assignment. And it doesn't force them into these defensive zone breakdowns where they're all of a sudden having to compensate for it in the attacking zone. We were talking about Kucherov here before the break. He's one of the best at consistently manipulating that where he kind of forces you to lean over a little bit. And then all of a sudden, boom, the puck is in the slot and it Steven Stamkos is a one-timer. And when you watch it back, you're like, how the hell did Steven Stamkos get wide open? He scored 60 goals in this league. He's still one of the best one-shot scorers that we have to offer. And it's because the other team was so scared about what Nikita Kucherov could do. And it kind of seeped into their subconscious. And so for the avalanche, I'm really fascinated in this series to see how Nathan McKinnon handles that because I think how he handles the attention and the spotlight that's going to come in this series is going to be the ultimate litmus test for me, for him. Um, I've been actually kind of surprised at how little discussion about his performance there has been generally on a national level this postseason. I wonder if it's because, you know, McCarr has been stealing so many of the headlines or it really is kind of a team effort where they have a bunch of different people chipping in, or maybe people are just like, all right, yeah, Nathan McKinnon has been dominating in the postseason for years now. It's kind of old news. It's not a, a, a big story anymore, but his individual numbers are kind of, kind of actually staggering here. Like he hasn't necessarily, hasn't been a one man show by any means, but if you just look at the, his own individual performance so far um, it's been right up there with, with any of the great sort of playoff Nathan McKinnon performances we've seen. 
I think, uh, first off, I definitely think that Makar's kind of stepping like this ascent to the God throne of defense, right. Yep. Has, has kind of overshadowed, uh, what's been a, a no, just un, as you mentioned, another great postseason for Nathan McKinnon, yep. because the, the reality is, is what we've seen from Nathan McKinnon, we've seen before in the NHL and what Makar is, is bringing to the league is just his combination of things and the volume of accomplishments at such a young age. Uh, it's just not something that we're accustomed to seeing from a defenseman. You know, Adam Fox has been great. And then you go and you look at, like postseason soaring through the first couple of years of their careers. And it's like Kale McCard is just a mile ahead of everybody. And some of that is opportunity, but some of that is also just the fact that Kale McCarr is a not of earth. And so I do think that some of this is just naturally McCarr has taken some of those headlines, but I do also think, you know, the, McKinnon had like that great game five against St. Louis, which ended yeah. up getting wasted, uh, unfortunately, in, in that in that dumb loss that they had. And his his big moment, that that single, that solo effort goal to to give them back that four to three lead kind of got buried in the well, they lost the game and it didn't matter, which has sort of been the the story of his career is you go back to the Edmonton bubble. He scores in every single game of the Edmonton bubble, except game seven against Dallas. Right. And you're like, does it just doesn't matter. And everyone scored because, in that game. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, I think that game ended up what five, four, like yeah. it was all over the place. And so you're, you're talking like, it, I do think that some of this is familiarity with him, but also his point production just has not quite been, the same. He's had a couple of multi-point games that have that have buoyed him, really picked him up. Yep. But like through the St. Louis series, you know, he's not scoring very much. But then you look at you look at his on-ice results head to head against Ryan O'Reilly. Greg Berube wants that matchup. Jared Bednar wanted that matchup. The Avs had that matchup in Denver. They got to St. Louis, and Berube was like, Well, I'm comfortable with this. And the Avs said, Okay. We'll take we'll take your vaunted nine twenty goal scorers and we'll see how they do when we take uh you know when we go O'Reilly against McKinnon we'll see how depth does on depth and we saw Nazem Kadri popped off and what was the difference in that series but defensively we've seen such a maturity from McKinnon this postseason the effort has been there where it hasn't been before the the self-inflicted wounds haven't been there a lot of the little cute things that he does during the regular season he's not doing mm. it's very cut and dry it's very keep it simple make the right play get out of the zone don't create problems that we have to turn around and solve just do what we need to do let's get out of here and let's go down to the other end and let's put pucks in the back of the net and it sounds easy on paper but then when you watch his, how he's executed this postseason he has been a, just on a different level in his own zone, taking care of his matchup. I mean, one-on-one, -on -one, he did just fine against Connor McDavid. He does just fine against uh, Ryan O'Reilly. And you're talking about those are guys that you would think might have a way with him at times, you know, especially O'Reilly and the Selkie level play there. It just didn't go that way. Head-to-head, -head, McKinnon was very comfortable. The production may not have always been there, but the abs were in the right they were in the right part of the ice more often than not and i think that's been the biggest change from mckinnon this season to to past is defensively he takes care of business there 
and he lets the rest like the rest of it is he he figures it out along the way. It's pretty good on he's a pretty good offensive player. Yeah. Well, I was I was gonna say, I mean, the volume he's generated right now is just preposterous, right? He's got 125 shot attempts in 14 games, 82 yeah. shots on goal. That's like a 500 shot pace over an 82 game season. Uh 11 goals, those, 11 goals in those 14 games. So you mentioned the point totals. I think we've been kind of desensitized because of what McDavid and Dry Seidel did this postseason in terms of like averaging over two points a game or whatever. But like he's been scoring the goals. And, you know, in the four game sweep with the Oilers that they had, he had 39 shot attempts in that. He scored three times. I thought what he displayed in that series was the perfect level of controlled aggression that I'd like to see with him in offensive settings where he wasn't forcing the issue by any means, but when the situation to attack would present itself, he'd go for it, right? Like he'd kind of smell blood in the water. He'd see Darnell nurse ahead of him one-on-one or Duncan Keith in front of him. And he's like, these guys can't stay in front of me. And he would just blow right by them for a rush chance. And the reason why I thought that was, uh, you know, so revelatory or, or, or so encouraging to see is because as much as I love Nathan McKinnon and as much joy as he's brought me watching him play over the past however many years, he can be frustratingly out of control sometimes, right? Like it's, it's almost like, I think it comes from a good place where he like wants it so badly, but sometimes he can get like a bit overzealous or, or a bit jittery where the defender almost doesn't even need to do anything. Like he may as well be doing a practice drill out there because he does a million little stick handles. He like spins himself into a circle. And then all of a sudden he's out of position. Whereas if he had just kept it very simple and just, you know, hit the open lane and went there, probably would have worked out for him and he kind of made it more difficult than not because he did too much. And he's in a great spot with his team where he doesn't need to do everything all the time. So he's allowed to kind of have shifts where he's defensively responsible. He plays, he manages himself and then he can attack every once in a while. And I think that's different in this situation, as opposed to maybe a couple of years ago where he kind of felt like he probably had to do everything because he pretty much did. Yeah, I think uh, what you're talking about, we talk about this a lot on our show is Nathan McKinnon's uh, the best defender in the world against Nathan McKinnon is Nathan McKinnon. Yeah, he gets the zoomies. He he defends himself at such a high level sometimes where uh, I think the perfect example of this, the perfect example, game four against Edmonton, uh, the fourth Edmonton goal is created entirely because Nathan McKinnon flies up that left wing, gets about six feet inside the blue line, stops, pulls up, tries to make a cute little pass to a covered Val Nachushkin. It's behind him. Nachushkin doesn't make any kind of play, doesn't get a stick on it, and it creates a four-on-two going the other way. And when you're taking on the Connor McDavid matchup, you cannot make that mistake high in your own zone. And when I when I mentioned earlier, a high, they can be a high-wire act at times, the Avalanche make more high-risk plays right inside their own blue line than anybody in the league. Anecdotally, I would say anybody in the league. They live so dangerously just inside that blue line, and it starts with McKinnon. He is the guy that he loves that. He loves that little – he'll drift out to the center of the ice and make that little wrist shot from the middle of the ice uh, where he tries – he's not trying to – it's not a bomb. It's not Shea Weber, you know. He's just trying to make it hard to see and they get all the traffic in front of the goalie and they just float pucks there. And his teammates have decided Burkowski and Rantanen both love to do this. And it is so high risk, but with McKinnon, uh, he, he takes away scoring chances because he will defend himself. He will drift to 
the perimeter like that. He will pull up inside the zone. It, him get, it's funny that you call you say he gets zoomies because uh, a couple years ago I referred to him as a golden retriever uh, with with rocket boots on. Yeah, because he just that's very much how he gets sometimes, uh, and it has been an interesting like the point totals are down this year, but a lot of the self-inflicted silliness is also down. And that's a trade-off that I think the avalanche are very, very comfortable with. Well, like one final note here on McKinnon, I thought it was a kind of uh, a bit of a cool wrinkle to share. Um, you know, as people that listen to this show, know I've, I've been deeply fascinated by the, the work he's put into his game, particularly from a shooting perspective, because for years he was kind of saddled with that six to 7% finishing rate. And it was a big reason why he wound up being on the contract that he's on right now. And obviously worked out great for everyone involved. Um, but I don't think it was an accident that he all of a sudden in 2017, I believe jumped up and now he's pretty much been living in the, in the low teens, which is what you'd expect from a volume shooter like him, who is still is as gifted mm-hmm. as he is. And I've been so fascinated by this. I, I've been you know, trying to talk to everyone about it. And then finally uh, I was lucky enough in April to go to Florida to Daryl Belfry's coaching conference. And he's the person who has worked one-on-one with Nathan McKinnon on that for an extensive period of time. And it was really cool seeing, um, kind of getting a, getting a peek behind the, under the hood sort of in terms of the attention to detail that goes into this and the amount of work that's been put into like the most uh, minute fine tuning in terms of just how he takes that shot. And you actually got to see it in that huge goal he scored uh, late in game four against the Oilers where he comes screaming down the wing and he winds up beating Mike Smith with this kind of like seemingly harmless looking snapshot from about 10 feet out or so. Like it was a high danger scoring chance because it's a rush opportunity by Nathan McKinnon and he was in tight, but it seemed like Mike Smith probably could have had that. Like it kind of snuck through him. Right. And it was funny talking to Daryl about this. Like one of the big adjustments they made was such a seemingly simple one, but it was just the way he was orienting his skates when he comes down the wing like that, because for the longest period of time, he was basically kind of like when you're like taught to shoot a free throw in basketball, you like point your feet at the hoop to like center yourself and make sure you're facing it. And he was basically doing that with his shot where he was like centering himself at the net at the goalie. And that in a weird way, it made it easier for the goalie to read what he was going to do because the goalie could just line up based on his toe uh, on his skate skates and then just know when, when he was going to shoot. And in this instance, if you go back and watch this goal, he's kind of facing them diagonal and down and away from Mike Smith. And you can clearly tell that he's moving so fast that Mike Smith can't really read what's like when he's about to release. And he releases it from this weird angle where he looks like he's off balance, but he's such a physical freak in his ability to separate his upper and lower body that he like contorts himself and shoots it off balance with the same velocity and accuracy that he'd have otherwise. And so I, I, it's a very like inside baseball thing, but I thought it was really yeah. cool to actually see like that work that's been put in kind of pay off on such a big stage like that. And like, that's kind of what it's all about, right? Like that's what you want to see from great players that, you know, they go back in the off season, they work on stuff that they can improve in their game and then it pays off in these moments. And that's kind of exactly what happened there. It uh, just as an aside, real quick, um, not in the series, but on McKinnon specifically, just his evolution and talking to him over the years about it. Um, I had a conversation with him. COVID, COVID screwed up my timeline of the world. Uh, I, I guess as it did everybody. Some, it, it was in the before times. Uh, 
and I was sitting because I was sitting uh, next to him in the locker room, and I was just we were just chatting about the game and stuff, and um, I, you know, I was I was asking him if he ever thinks about his legacy or, you know, if he and, and like like what he wants to accomplish and you know his goals and stuff and and what was kind of driving the dramatic changes that he made in his life and his lifestyle you know hiring hiring a you know the personal chef and getting on top of his nutrition which led to the funny stories from Nikita Zadorov about you know all the stuff that that kind of turned him into almost like a cartoon character um like a like a candy fascist in their do, locker room. Do you think room. if they win the cup, he's gonna have exactly one carbohydrate? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I think it's it's either that or he'll use this as an example of success, and it, it will be never again under any circumstances. It'll be never again in his playing yeah. career. But in talking to him, uh, I'll what will we'll, I think will always resonate with me as uh he got kind of the serious tone and, and he looked at me and he said he said aj the next seven years are the best i'm ever gonna be at this i have to make this count and i just think that mindset he has that mindset every day he has to make this count he's never going to be better at the thing that he does that he loves to do than he currently is and so he has to make it count and i think that just as an emotional driver, he sees that. And you mentioned him wanting it so badly sometimes uh, and, and it can cause him problems. I think this year you use the term controlled aggression earlier. I think this year has been the best example of a guy learning to rein himself in and then letting go in the right spots. Yep. Occasionally it can get a little, it can still get a little wild and our expectations from Nathan McKinnon are perfection. So anytime he makes a mistake, it's like, oh my God, this is unacceptable, you know? Yeah. And it's, and in reality, you know, he, he does 25 good things and one bad thing. And that's the thing we talk about, but his, his maturation, human being hockey player and melding together that determination and that naturally that natural aggression and the power that he plays with, I think has been the key to unlocking his best version in this postseason. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme, Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work, Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Recognize employees with Custom Ink. Show customer appreciation with Custom Ink. 
Outfit your teams with Custom Ink. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Ink your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Well, okay, so while we're on McKinnon, let's transition then to the topic of the matchup game in this upcoming series against the Lightning because I'm very curious to see how that shakes out. And, and you, you alluded to earlier, um, Jared Bednar has been very comfortable uh, or, or just genuinely just embracing the idea of going power versus power in these series, right? Going head to head with Ryan O'Reilly, going head to head with Nathan McKinnon, uh, with, with Connor McDavid, sorry. Um, and in this series, the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, watching the East final, John Cooper just completely changed the complexion of that series against the Rangers when he switched up their top two forward lines ahead of game three. They lost the first two in New York. Then ahead of game three, he moved Steven Stamkos back to the middle so he could center more of a traditional scoring line with Kutrov and Palat. And that trio basically took over offensively. I think they outscored the Rangers 6-1 at 5-1-5 in the final four games. But I think the even bigger kind of consequence of that, the trickle-down effect of doing so, is it freed him up to move Anthony Sorelli down to a role that was his skill set is better suited for, which is kind of more of a shutdown checking line. And so he played him with Alex Kaloran and Brandon Hagel. And the three of them were just tasked with shadowing New York's top line. And Sorelli in particular made me because of Benajad's life a living hell from game three on. Uh, he was out there for 48 of Zabinajad's 68, five on five minutes from games three to six. Zabinajad had zero points, four shots, and not a single high danger chance. They just completely destroyed them in those minutes. And the Rangers just didn't have the depth at five on five to compensate for that. So basically taking out that one line was like, all right, at this point after that, the Rangers just can't score. And so it was a very clear decision of like why Cooper did that and how it worked. Right. And, and in this series, it'll be significantly more difficult to do that because you can't just say, all right, we're going to try to slow down Nathan McKinnon here. All right. That's great. They have all these other weapons that can beat you in different ways. So you can't just necessarily invest all of your defensive resources into stopping one line. Right. But the reason why I do bring that up is because I did want to give Sorelli in particular uh, credit because he's been kind of doing this all postseason. I, I tweeted this the other day, but He's played 252 five-on-five minutes so far this postseason, and there have been six total goals scored by both the Lightning and the opponents in those minutes. And his primary competition in all three of those rounds were the Zabinijad line, the Austin Matthews line, and the Sasha Barkov line. And so that's the best the other teams had to offer, and he's been out there, and he hasn't been scoring himself. Uh, I believe he has only one shorthanded goal so far this postseason, like five assists or four or five assists or something like that. But that's not his job. His job is to try to slow down the other team's best players. And he's basically just been like the perfect black hole of offense for everyone. And he goes out there. His motor is as good as you'll see in this league. He just wins every battle along the boards, makes your life a living hell trying to break out. And they create all these chances off the cycle because of that. And I think that's clearly what the Lightning are going to want to try to recapture in this series we talked about at the start about how they need to establish a cycle and establish a forecheck to slow down Colorado's rush attack right and so I assume John Cooper is going to want to have a lot of Sorelli out there particularly against Nathan McKinnon because you know I guess if Braden Point comes back and is remotely healthy that gives him another option down the middle but as currently constructed Sorelli is really one of the few players they have that can skate with Nathan McKinnon at this point, if anyone really can. Um, and so I don't think he's going to want to have any other lines out there. Now, 
I'd assume that based on the track record, Jared Bednar, especially in the first two games where he has last change, is going to want to have McKinnon, Nachushkin, and um, and Landeskog along with Makar and Taves out against Kucherov's line. Like you think mm-hmm. that would that would seem based on what he's done so far that that would make the most sense where he's going to go like, all right, I'm going to use my best line against your best scoring line at least play them to a draw, hopefully try to win those minutes and bet on the fact that our depth otherwise is going to just steamroll your lines two to four. Um, and so that runs very counter to what I assume John Cooper would like to do. And that's where we get into this fascinating chess match of, I assume the matchups in games one and two are going to look significantly different than games three and four. Yeah. I fully expect that that will be the case that just again, given history and Bedner's comfort um, best on best will be what he wants. Uh, and then, where Cooper is able to get with get Sorelli out there. Um, Colorado's second line has been really productive. Yeah. Um, Arturi Lekkinen and, you know, Miko Rantanen. It's funny, outs- outside of Colorado, people look at Miko Rantanen and think, wow, what a, what a playoff performer. And inside Colorado, everybody's like, what's wrong with Miko Rantanen? <laughs> uh, because he just has not looked the same. No. Um, you know, rumor has it that he, you know, when he, he had a, he had a really bad, flu bug at the end of the regular season uh rumor has it that he lost quite a bit of weight uh during that process and that uh that might be what he's struggling with is that he's not he's not playing in the in the kind of shape that he's accustomed to and that's removed some of the power from his game and if you watch him you would 100 percent believe that and uh that's the but him getting moved to that second line with Kadri not 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 sure what Kadri's status is. Uh, it's either Comfer as that second line, which is a huge step back. No offense, JT. Or it's Rantanen as that second line center, which has been... It, it, like it's, it's a weird stopgap that has actually worked for the Evs this year. They've done it a number of times where Rantanen's been that 2C. And if that ends up the matchup with Sorelli... Uh, I I think Colorado's going to be uncomfortable um, with that without Kadri. Yep. If Kadri is back, I think it gives them a puncher's chance. But that Sorelli has been able to uh, effectively just erase offense. He's it's it's no event hockey. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It just it's such a it's such a feather in their cap because they're they're the team as we've talked about this whole this whole time. Tampa's the team that wants to play that way. They're happy to play two on one. They're happy to be one, one four minutes to play in the third period. Just, just assuming that one of their stars is going to make the big play because they always do. And I think that that's where they've been so successful. And if they can, if they can just effectively say, Hey, bottom six nullifies bottom six. uh, And, and then the, uh, the, the Sorelli line is able to just remove whichever matchup they get. They'll just continue to rely on their stars to get it done where Colorado, I think presents a unique challenge is their defense is so high scoring yeah. that it's not just like Kale McCarr gets all the accolades. I think Devon Taves is third in the NHL right now in defenseman scoring this postseason. The Bowen Byram has seven points in 14 games and it could be, it could easily be 12 or 13 points with some of the chances that he's created that haven't been finished 
or assists that later got taken away after games. Yeah. Uh, he's He's been very good offensively as well. So I think Colorado's high-scoring defense, and this isn't something that Tampa Bay can counter with, it's like Victor Hedman and sort of Sergachev, and that's, sort, that's, that's kind of it. They don't really, you know, McDonough and Chernak are not going to be point producers for them, uh, like reliable point producers. Yep. And Colorado generates so much offense from that back end that that the line matchups, that, that could be the monkey wrench that the Avs are able to throw into to Tampa Bay's perfect plan is that they have a high-scoring defense that, that does jump into the play, that does create mismatches uh, and, and odd man rushes and just finds its way to points all the time. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, let's 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 talk about Makar and Taves, and I feel like we've kind of been touching on them a little bit here, but haven't fully uh, mm-hmm. embraced the discussion. I mean, Makar right now is a one-man fast break in 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 you know the strongest definition of it. Like I mentioned, that seventy-five percent or yeah. so possession exit rate. Here, I'll give you some more stats on him. He's got more five-on-five points this postseason than five-on-five goals against while he's been on the ice. So he's got 14 five-on-five points. The Avs have given up only 13 goals while he's been out there. He's eating up over 27 minutes uh, a night so far, and that's without really any extended OTs to inflate the average, right? I think they've played like one or two overtimes. They've ended pretty quickly. Like It's not like they've had a triple Mm -hmm. overtime or something to really skew those numbers. I think it's it's four overtime games, and none of them, I think, extended beyond 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Him and Taves have been... Brilliant together. I tweeted the stat of Colorado 63, nine and six with a plus 121 goal differential with the two of them in the lineup so far this season, they got the primary assignment versus McDavid in the previous round. They were out there for roughly two thirds or so of his minutes. And and they did a good job of making sure at least one of them was out there in some defensive combination, um, depending on kind of where the game was headed. And it was just a masterclass of, of how to defend efficiently in the modern game, right? Like it was, jumping, passing routes, uh, breaking plays up at the blue line, you know, poking and prodding at everything, but without taking penalties, like it was pretty much everything you'd like to see. And I was talking to an NHL defenseman about this, you know, I don't know how much you can emulate from Kale McCarr's game. If you're a regular person that's playing the position, because he just has like physical skills as a skater that if you can't skate that well, there's certain things you just, you can do that you will never be able to do. I think if I was an NHL defenseman, I would be just absorbing every single Devon Tate shift possible and, and studying it yeah. and, and trying to replicate it. Uh, not that you'd be able to do so, but you know, he doesn't necessarily have the same physical tools. Right? He's not the fastest skater. He doesn't have the hardest shot. He doesn't not the best passer, not the strongest guy. Like he's, a well-rounded player, but certainly someone who you could physically stack up to as an NHL defenseman, but he just reads the ice so well. Like he's always, he's always able to stay in front of the action despite not being the type of skater that Makar is. So like, he never really has to re- retreat. He always defends skating forward. It, it's remarkable the way he's able to pull that off. And so the two of them, um, I'm very curious to see what their usage is like in this series, especially if the forwards are kind of neutralizing each other, because we've seen that, that 
you know, in tense situations, Jared Bednar is very comfortable getting them out for as much as humanly possible. And I could, I could see Makar's minutes even getting closer to the 30 minute range throughout the series. Um, if it's as tight as I think it could be. Yeah, they, uh, you talk about modern defending, they are the world-class example of that, the way that they're disruptive with sticks, that they, uh, Byram also does this really well, that they uh, deny zone entries. They stop things, uh, instead of instead of the old school idea of being hard to defend, hard to play against in your own, in your own zone, you're physical, you're bruising, you're punishing, all that stuff. They just don't let other teams set up shop in their zone. They're just like, look, we just, we're just not going to let you have the puck in this part of the ice. And when you do, when you have it in the neutral zone, we're either going to take it from you or when you try and make a play, we're going to disrupt it. And if you dump, if you dump it on us, we'll turn around we'll skate back. We'll pick it up and we'll get rid of the thing. They just, and, and they just make so few mistakes along the way uh, that they are, they're a great example of not beating themselves at the highest level. And then creating, and then all the other stuff happens. You know, the Devon Taves jumps into the play on the back end of changes like a madman. He does it all the time. Yep. He causes so many problems. Kale McCarr, everybody knows. Kale McCarr's existence is a problem for everybody else. It's, it, it, and to a lesser extent, Byram does all these things as well. And that's what gives the Avalanche that extra dynamic, the, 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 that extra dynamic dimension to their blue line is that Byram takes, the things that both of those guys do well has a little bit of both of them in him and incorporates that into his game and then has found a partner in Eric Johnson. Their play together has been exceptional. So they, they really just, uh, they really just defend it's, it's the sticks. Uh, yeah. If you just focus, just take one game and watch any pick any, pretty much any game and you just watch how Colorado defends with their sticks, not physically, not, you know, not punishing you, not, you know, pinning you along the wall or any of that, not worrying about any of the highlight real stuff. If you just watch how they defend with their sticks and how disruptive they are, that's where Edmonton ran into consistent issues is that they could not get into the home plate area when there was any level of structure after game one, because the apps just said, mm -mm, we're not doing that again. They tore the abs up in the first game of that series with the with the seam passes and the backdoor stuff. The abs shut that down the rest of the way, and Edmonton's offense more or less went with it. Yeah, and it's it's through all three zones, and it's pretty much everyone that's out there, right? Like Lekkonen, Chushkin, Landeskog. Like the number of times that it just must be so annoying to play against because you feel like you have a clear path, like in the neutral zone or something, you're like, all right, I'm going to skate this out and take a couple steps here and see what I can do with it. And then all of a sudden this guy just comes flying out of nowhere and sort of poke checks you and they might not even cause a turnover, but mm -hmm. they've, they've nudged you enough where all of a sudden you're kind of having to regroup. You lost that momentum that you just built up yep. and you're kind of starting from scratch. And it's a really tough way to keep playing that way. If you're stopping and starting. And ironically enough, it's like exactly what Tampa Bay is going to need to do to Colorado skaters mm -hmm. to try to slow them down in that way. And they do it in a much more sort of conventional physicality way. Like they're not poke, like they have certainly players like Sorelli and Platt that they can cause havoc with their sticks, but they're going to try to lean on Colorado much more in this series. And so that kind of push and pull between these two teams is, is going to be so incredible to watch for me where, um, 
I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to play out throughout the series. I think we might be treated to at least one or two kind of more open, um, fast paced games, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see a couple of like really, uh, kind of grinded out, uh, very little traction because it's just so tight checking between the two. And like we talked about maybe in past years, that would have scared Colorado off. Uh, and maybe it still should because no one plays better in those settings than Tampa Bay does, but they seem much more well-equipped to handle it and take it in stride uh, this postseason that they have in, in the past. Yeah, the reality is, is that the Avalanche, if they're going to win the Stanley Cup, they're going to have to win a, at least a game or two uh, playing Tampa Bay's way. They're going to have to beat them at their own game. These two teams are both just too good to not impose their will on any of the games. Uh, the the abs, the abs are definitely going to get a game or two where it's a lot more open ice and up and down, and they have to capitalize on that. They have to, they have to get pucks past Andre Vasilevsky. That's that's really like their greatest challenge here. All the style stuff, all the other stuff is at the end of all of that is Andre Vasilevsky, the final boss of the final boss. It's he's like like when you beat the final boss and then he mutates into a third thing. And he gets a, you know, he has 10 HP bars. That's Vasilevsky. He's that guy. He's their final form. He is, but you saw, you saw in the first two games against, against the Rangers, like a lot of people were chalking it up to rust and having, having been off for eight or nine days or whatever. I thought that was totally bogus. Like New York had a game plan and executed it, right? Like they Mm -hmm. were doing so many crossing passes, getting all these one-timers where they were forcing Vasilevsky to move laterally. And then they were beating them with like perfect, like Panera and Zabinajad pick top corner. And then you see all these stats about how Vasilevsky's vulnerable high blocker side. And it's like, yeah, every single goalie, if you hit the perfect shot, top corner is going to be, that's going to be their most vulnerable position. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Tampa Bay got back to what makes them special, which is shutting the game down after that. Right. And so Vasilevsky's an unbelievable goalie. His athleticism is unlike anything I've ever seen. And he can steal a game or even a series in this context. But Tampa Bay, regardless of that, whether it's Mike Smith or whether it's Andre Vasilevsky and that, you don't, you can't allow Colorado to skate through the neutral zone and tee off on rush chances, regardless of who your goalie is. And for as good as Vasilevsky is, if they allow that to happen, it's going to be a quick series. Like he, there's only so much you can do, right? Eventually, the avalanche are inevitable when they're allowed to play that way. And that's what it's going to come down. That's why I think we've been focusing so much in the, in this, in this preview on kind of the details of the four check and the breakouts yeah, and all that. And it's not the most glamorous stuff, but I think that's what it's going to come down to because whichever team is able to exert their will in that regard is going to ultimately determine how these games are played and how they're played is going to determine the result more so than having one great player at any position. Yeah. I mean, if, if, this series goes seven games and all seven games are muck and grind and two, one, you sure like Tampa Bay's chances. Um, all right. Let's uh, I think we about hit everything there. I don't know. Did you have anything else on, on this series that you kind of wanted to tee up or, or preview while we're still here? Uh, really just, I'm excited to see more than anything. Uh, I'm excited to see the Victor Hedman, Kale McCarr, because yeah. this is like the last bastion of, great defenseman that Kale McCarr has to like take down to prove he's great. Uh, you know, he goes, he goes head to head against Roman Yossi and Roman Yossi, you know, just folds completely, yeah. totally overmatched. Right. Uh, and, and now it's like everybody, it's like Victor Hedman does it all. He plays for the champs. He does everything for the champs. This is kind of like his chance 
to drive that stake home. If there's anybody still out there believing that Kale McCarr is not the number one guy, I'm curious to see how he does it just on a, just on like a individual level. But for the, for the preview of the series, I think, uh, I think I'm pretty good. All right. Well, uh, let's get out of here. I think we've got a minute left on the, on this call. Um, plug some stuff. What, uh, where can people check you out and, uh, what have you done lately? Uh, you guys can find me over at uh, the dnvr.com uh, covering the avalanche. We also have the DNVR avalanche podcast uh, in which uh, things, uh, you know, we can get I'm pretty hockey nerdy, but we also like bad food takes. So if you have those uh, come visit us, we do watch alongs uh, during every, every uh, avalanche playoff game. Uh, we, we really just do everything avalanche related. The dnvr.com is where we're at uh, website wise. And, Got a YouTube channel full of videos and full of stuff. And some of it's fun and some of it's pretty chaotic. So come hang out. Well, this was a blast, AJ. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Enjoy the series. And I'm sure we'll have you back on here sometime soon. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers, pal. All right. That is going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the preview that AJ and I just did. Hopefully it has you feeling excited about the upcoming Stanley Cup final, feeling a bit more ready. Uh, it should be a really fun series. We'll see how the uh, the schedule goes. I think the, we'll try to do an in-series show maybe after game two or something like that. So uh, so check, keep checking the feed and hopefully we'll be able to um, you know enjoy these games and then have some fun content uh, based on what we see. Uh, if you did enjoy the show, as always, uh, you can help us out by leaving a quick rating and review for the PDO cast, wherever you typically listen to the show. Uh, thank you for doing so. If you have done so already, if you haven't, it's so easy to do. It helps us a lot. So please uh, consider helping us out. If you're looking for more work from me, uh, you can certainly subscribe to EP Ringside. We've got the annual draft guide, which is always a crowd pleaser, coming out this week. Uh, and the draft is just around the corner. So I really think if you're excited about that, if you're a fan of a team that we haven't talked about here over the past couple of weeks because they didn't make the playoffs or were bounced early and you have a high draft pick and you're, and you're kind of wondering who to be excited about, there's no better resource than uh, the EP draft guide to get you ready for that. So uh, I believe the subscription comes with that. Also access to, uh, to my written coverage. I'll be writing about this series and then a lot of stuff in the offseason for transactions and free agency and trades and, and all that good stuff. So uh, subscribe to EP Ringside, leave us a rating and review, and, uh, and we'll be back soon here with more. So until then. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.